I hadn't really lived my life because I was living other people's lives. I'd been thinking about taking mine. I hadn't really loved because I got hurt, so I blocked out my heart. I hadn't really mattered because I was a young man. I hadn't been taught you know, service and contribution and meaning like we all talk about so casually now. I just didn't see all that. But bam, I thought life was getting taken away and I realized how precious it was. And now I had reverence for it and gratitude for it. And that's what I call mortality motivation. It's like when you realize it can go away, you're more motivated to use it well. I always tell people, when they, people talk about like time management, I go, no, no, no. Time management is not a productivity thing. Time management is a mortality thing. If you have real reverence for life, you use your time well. Welcome to the Commune Podcast, where every week we explore the ideas and practices that bring us together and help us live healthy and purpose-filled lives. I'm your host, Jeff Krasnow. So often we compare ourselves to others. We see their success and we wonder, how did they get there? How did they find their purpose? How did they achieve so much without their marriage, health, mood, or quality of life suffering? What is it about certain people that makes it possible for them to perform at such high levels? After a near-death experience, Brendan Burchard spent years asking these questions and more. Today, Brendan is the world's leading high-performance coach and one of the most watched, quoted, and followed personal development trainers in history. His videos have been viewed more than 100 million times, and more than 2 million students have completed his online courses and video series. Brendan's best-selling books include The Motivation Manifesto, The Charge, The Millionaire Messenger, and Life's Golden Ticket. His latest book, High Performance Habits, How Extraordinary People Become That Way, debuted as a Wall Street Journal bestseller, and Amazon named it in the top three best business and leadership books of 2017. He shared the stage with the Dalai Lama, Sir Richard Branson, Steve Forbes, Tony Robbins, and hundreds more innovative leaders and luminaries. Today, I sit down with Brendan, looking over a beautiful sunset over the Columbia River, and we talk about how he got where he is today, and we get into some real actionable takeaways for how we can increase our productivity right along with our overall sense of health and well-being. I'm Brendan Burchard. I am most known for online training because we've graduated 2 million people from my online courses, built tens of millions of fans across social media, millions on our email lists. You know, we do these large events eight times a year with thousands of people all over the world. And that's the outside stuff that I had to learn to do to sell the books. Because I was like, I want to be a writer. So I had to learn to be a trainer and a teacher and a speaker and an online teacher and an online personality so that more people would discover the books. So it's funny, they know me for that, but all of that was a tool for me to further my career as a writer. Got it. So when people ask me, who's this Brendan Burchard guy? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'll give you my version of your Oh, bio. I got it. Okay, okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, Brendan's a guy that helps people achieve their highest potential. Yes. Is that fair? Yes. And you help people to create and live extraordinary lives. Yeah, high performance is my focus. It's, yeah. And that whole focus is how do people achieve long-term success while maintaining their well-being 
and positive relationships. So I asked this question, like, how do you go to the next level of success without compromising everything else? How do, you, how, how do you go to the next level of success and not ruin your marriage or your health or your sense of joy and vibrancy each day? Because that's where people screw it up. A lot of people can succeed, but then they wreck it the rest of their life. Yeah. I want to kind of unpack kind of where you got to this place because, you know, the history of psychology, at least until the mid 20th century, was, was largely about sort of diagnosing, identifying and addressing like what's wrong with people. Yes. And this guy, Abraham Maslow, came along and started this human potential movement and it was much more focused on what is actually right with people and not only what's right, but how people can essentially self-actualize right here on earth. Do you see yourself as sort of the torch bearer of that tradition? Uh, one of them. Mm -hmm. I have been a kid who has been focused on psychology and neuroscience and personal development and spirituality equally. I've read a book a week on some of those topics for 22 years. Wow, still? I've never missed. I missed two weeks of my entire life. In 22 years, I've read a book a week. And always on those topics, though. And so I'm fascinated by them. So, yeah, I, I love Maslow, but, you know, along with him was Carl Rogers and Alfred Adler, who kind of set the tone for all of us in the psychology field. But in personal development, long before them... You had Dale Carnegie, Napoleon Hill, Earl Nightingale, Jim Rohn, Zig Ziglar, you know, who really set the stage in personal development. And then ultimately Wayne Dyer and Tony Robbins, Deepak Chopra, Marianne Williamson, you know, the are more contemporary folks. And long before them, we had the Buddha. We had Taoist philosophy. We had Christianity and Catholicism and more the biblical spiritual scriptures or Muhammad. Then I learned from that too all of that. So I, I'm that multidisciplinary guy who's always looking for human behavior and human potential and asking the question, how do we actually apply that stuff in our real life? Like, show me how all that lands on Monday. <laughs> show me how all that lands when right. you're in a fight with your wife. Show me how that applies. When you feel stressed and overwhelmed or when distractions winning the day, what tools or philosophies or principles can we grab from all that to make you cope better today? get more done today and feel more like alive and vibrant today. That's always been my quest. I wanted to be the guy who made it practical. And I want to be the guy who said, oh, in this situation, here's five things we've learned. And in this situation, here's other five things we learned. So I've been very research dependent in my life and then very practical. Right, right. So in that research, you've probably interviewed thousands of people. Yeah. And of those thousands of people that, you're, that you've interviewed, is there anyone that has said, hey, Brendan, I really don't want to live an extraordinary life? <laughs> no, but they use different words. They'll be like, oh, Brendan, you talk a lot about you know, discipline and being organized and managing my time. Like, ah, Brendan, I'm just a free-flowing yoga girl. I mean, I don't want all this structure, you know? You're, 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 you're bounding me in, man, with all these, like, rules and practices and stuff. I just, I just want to flow with the universe. And I say, well, you know, I, I get that, and I understand that, because a lot of people think productivity or effectiveness or even high performance, what a phrase, right? It's not very soft. They're like, high performance? Well, that, that, that's not me. I'm not into success. I'm not into achievement. You use those words a lot, Brendan. I, I just want to go with the flow, man. And what I usually say that is, I want you to have that too. Because I wrote about it in the Motivation Manifesto that one of the main human drives we experience is this drive towards personal freedom. We all want to 
have the freedom to fully express who we really are and have the freedom to pursue things that really deeply matter to us and engage us and bring out passion and joy. So we want those freedoms. So anytime you talk about discipline or boundaries or time management, people go, Ugh. but I was still like that, that person, I say, yeah, but you know, have you ever been in a time where you felt like you had to miss a class because you didn't have time? Oh yeah. Have you ever wanted to go on a, on a yoga retreat? but you, were, you just couldn't afford it, you were too busy? Yeah. Did any of that ever happen because you didn't manage your time well? Oh, yeah. Well, oh, yoga girl don't have time for yoga retreat. <laughs> That's because yeah. all that free-flowing stuff, if we don't organize the best of ourselves to handle the day well, to set up projects, to have deadlines, to get things done, we don't get the free time with our family, our friends, our well-being that we really want. Right. So it's almost like refining a different kind of practice. Because like you said, everybody has these great dreams for themselves, right? But if I'm hearing you correctly, the main culprit holding us back from achieving those dreams is actually not about not having the vision for it, but it's actually about not having the practice for it. Yeah, most people have a, a, some kind of inkling or a vision or a dream or a hope, but often they don't have the confidence or they don't have the community or they don't have the competence or they simply are lacking the clarity of exactly the path forward. And so we just have to diagnose well, where it, which of those is true for you and how can we take some steps to give you a little bit more sense of self, a little sense of ownership in those, a little belief in self, and a little bit more of a practical roadmap to getting there. Because there's very few dreams that have not already been achieved by other people. And that's why I've always loved like researching biographies or researching people who've already done it. The path is already there. But the problem is people wander into something and they spend years wandering into that thing, wondering about it. And when the path is already been forged by somebody, someone's already got the map. But most people kind of bumble in for years yeah. and their journey is way harder than it needed to be because they didn't have the practice of researching or asking or identifying where they might not be sure. Yeah. There's a great quote at the beginning of your book that's uh, from Aristotle. Excellence is not an art won by training and habituation. We do not act rightly because we have virtue or excellence, but we rather have those because we have acted rightly. We are what we repeatedly do. Excellence, then, is not an act, but a habit. And for me, that, that kind of says that if you execute the positive habits, then excellence is sort of a simply a product of that execution. So you did a tremendous amount of research to understand what those habits are. Yeah. I had been teaching personal development and some psychological concepts for a good six or seven years. And I kind of became the guy in high performance. And I started just being honest, I'm like, do I know enough about this to be the guy? Like everybody was coming to me, major celebrities, world-class Olympians. I mean, like the best of the best of entrepreneurs and executives. And I just wanted to test myself. I'm like, do I know this for sure, what I'm teaching and coaching upon? So that began this, it really opened this door to say, you know what, let's do some research. So ultimately I teamed up with High Performance Institute and then a lot of positive psychologists from the University of Pennsylvania's really famous positive psychology department. And I said, let's do it. Let's conduct a real research project and, and see what are the habits of the world's highest performing people. 
is what I have gathered from my own research, my own practice with other people, my own personal practices, and my observations and interviews accurate. So we conducted the world's largest study of high performers ever done, and we sought out by measuring over about 100 different performance variables. So we gave them self-assessments, asked them about questions related to 100 different performance variables that had already been academically validated to lead to success. Then once we gave them the self-assessments, we did the smell test on it, and we said, okay, is it, what they're saying, can we measure it in another way externally? So if someone said they were a high performer because of you know, all these indications, we'd also ask if they're a salesperson, okay, let's get their rank in, terms, in the organization in, in, to see if they're really high performing. Or let's see if this person in this field is really high performing. So we did all this work. Long story short, we identified six habits that most strongly correlated with long-term success where they still did have high reported levels of happiness, well-being, and positive relationships. We weren't interested in people who had lots of success and were miserable. <laughs> you know, We didn't measure them. So full yeah. disclaimers, that's a weakness of our study, right? <laughs> we uh, Over 2 million data points from high performers from 190 countries. It's the first global study that's ever been done at that level. And what we found out is people who succeed over the long term have personal habits and social habits that really give them the edge. Yeah, well, let's let's unpack a few. Let's, let's start with the social habits. You know, I have them here that increase productivity, develop influence, demonstrate courage. And I want to unpack the increased productivity piece just for a second. There's a book called Essentialism. For you, is there an essentialism quality to increasing productivity? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you have to know what we call the needle movers. What are the major activities that make the greatest difference to lead to the outcome you want, right? And that's the essentials you focus on. The non-essentials that get in the way of that, you've got to learn how to set boundaries or delegate or take off your plate so you can become a little bit obsessed with these things that you know will lead to a result. I also believe that you know a lot of high performers, they're minimalistic too. They're a minimalism that says, you know, I really just, these few things matter the most. And so we say that you know, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Is that hard for you? I mean, you're such a instinctively generous guy. When I think about Brendan, I think of like, yes. And, <laughs> that's but that's dangerous yeah. if you're trying to be an essentialist or increase productivity. How do you deal with that? I mean, here we are up in your beautiful place and taking up time of your life. And I know you care deeply about our relationship, but you've got a million things going on. How do you know when to say yes and no? Yeah, there's this concept in High Performance Habits. It's in that chapter talking about increasing productivity called PQO. And PQO stands for Prolific Quality Output. I learned this from a high performer in the research we did. And what it means is you have to identify the things you need to be prolific at and to deliver with excellence and quality in order to get the outcomes that are rewarded in your field. So when I look at my week or I look at requests, I go, does this contribute to my PQO? Uh, you know, in a, another way, does this contribute to my body of work that matters in my field? Well, today we're doing a podcast and an interview talking about these concepts that are important to me. Uh, today we were filming a course that I know will outlive me and add to the body of work in the realm of high performance that's important to me. And so it aligned. I got lots of requests that don't align with PQO. And, you know, talk to this person on some topic that's unrelated to what I 
believe is important for high performance? I go, nah, I get uh, a ton of requests. Another thing I learned in that study was on average, high performers, they're basically the top 15% of most successful people in any given field. No matter how you measure it, if it's like the most happy persons in the community, they're the top 15% most happy. If they're, you know, you're talking about wealth, they're the top 15% most wealthy. If they're the highest performing executive, it's, you know, so it's kind of the top 15%. They, they tend to spend 60% of their week on PQO. 40% is, you know, Managing life, delegating, dealing with team, answering emails or DMs or, you know, being with family and everything else. But 60% of the work week is on PQO activities. And that was one of the great things from the study I learned because my week wasn't like that, man. Because I love online training and online influence. Because I coach a lot of influencers. Because I have the opportunity to kind of invest in companies and build companies. I, I was... Very busy, but without PQO, your busy work. You, you can be stuck in busy work that's not your life's work. Right. And I think what people have to do is identify what is more of the PQO I need to create to contribute to my life's work and spend at least 60% of your week there. And if you do that, I mean, really extraordinary results happen. Yeah. You also mentioned, as, as part of increasing productivity, getting insanely good at five things. Yeah. What are those five things for you? You don't have to answer. You can give me two. Well, t- two ways to think about it. One, in, in the book, I talk about the importance of identifying five major skills that will contribute to that PQO. So number one, stage communication. I was terrible at public speaking. Really? And not only terrible, mortified of it. Like there's one thing being bad. There's one thing of being bad and being so fearful of it. Like it's fun to be happy and stupid bad at something, like joyfully bouncing into something knowing you're not good. And there's another one when you're mortified. (laughs) And I was like terrified of public speaking. And then this last, what, since May, so the last six, seven months, I spoke to 55,481 people in audiences and arenas and convention centers, hotel ballrooms with zero fear. That had to be developed. I had to learn how to get good on video. I was really uncomfortable as a skill being on video. Um, And as you saw today, I do extemporaneous speaking on video. No notes, no cues, no cards, no teleprompter. That was impossible at the beginning. I had to have a teleprompter. And I wanted to wean myself off that. So I had to learn extemporaneous video speaking, which is different than being on stage. Uh, Those were two. Is there a commonality between those two things relating to an ability to be present? Yes. Was was there an inflection point for you where it was like, I'm mortified about this. I'm thinking about it. Yeah. I think the foundation of presence is trust. Trusting that what I'm going to be called forth upon on that stage will happen. Trusting that I've done my research. Trusting that I did my preparation. Trusting that what the audience needs in that moment, I'll be able to deliver and feel. And trusting that sometimes there's nowhere else to turn. You're on stage, the light's on, you got nowhere to go. So you have to find that trust to just keep going. So then three of the other habits that you talk about in the book are more personal. Can you tell me those ones? Yeah. uh, The primary one, the highest correlative habit that high performers have is that they consistently seek clarity. 
you know, this is why you're a high performer for sure, is because there's a high level of curiosity that you have and you want to learn and you want to explore. And high performers simply like take a job. You know, the high performing person in the job probably asks more questions than everybody else does. There are simple questions like, what's this meeting about? What's our intention? To how does that work? Or how does this impact the customer? They're asking more questions. But at a personal level, high performers are on a more consistent basis. When they go into any given context or situation, they ask, who do I want to be in this situation? So before they go in, they're setting an intention like, ah, you know, I want to, I want to make sure my values or this side of me comes out. They also ask, how should I interact with this person? A high performer, before they go to the meeting, like, how do I want to demonstrate myself? Who do I want to be in this meeting? But they'll also say, how do I want to talk to Sally in this meeting? They're, they're, they're inquisitive about how their interactions should go. Like, and the opposite of that is people just bumble in and just go through the flow. High performers have intention. And that intention is what we call clarity. They're seeking clarity of how do I want this to go? They're also clear on the skills they need to develop to become higher performers. And they're also constantly seeking clarity on what will give me meaning and fulfillment in this situation. Mm, yeah. I think that also requires a certain kind of pause because it's easy just to go, go, go. Yes. You know, short wave conversations, short wave reactive kind of thing. But if you are going to ask yourself those questions, if you are going to get clear before you walk into that meeting, that does require a habit Yes, of actually taking a moment, getting really, really clear, taking a breath, and then asking yourself those questions. Yeah. I mean, very few people allow themselves that space. And without that space, they end up winging it or being stressed out or lacking the intention that could have helped that situation become more successful or engaged or connected or useful. And I think that practice, and which you and I both share, of slowing it down, trying to connect to the body or the breath, trying to allow a moment of reflection or a moment of discovery to happen, it's too bad people don't do more of that. One of the other personal habits is generating energy. And I think this is a great segue into wellness and well-being. Yes. Because you're one of the most energetic guys I've ever met. <laughs> well, um, thank you. Wow, and, that means a lot to me coming from you, man. <laughs> well, yes, you, you've knocked this one down. And it's not just about coming with a lot of enthusiasm. It's also about dealing with stress, dealing with tension, bringing joy into the world, into the people around you, being in service to yourself, but also to others, but also just optimizing your health because it is hard to bring your best self into the world when you feel like shit. Yes. Um, and I, to be honest, I, I know I'm in the field of well-being, but I have all sorts of deficiencies. I'm not a great sleeper. I have to really train myself and work hard to meditate. So I'm curious around this subject of like, what are the essential elements of well-being that contribute to high performance and productivity? And even kind of like back from that, what does well-being actually mean to you? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Big questions. Maybe I can give a, a simple metaphor that's kind of becoming the defining 
metaphor of my life a little bit in this area is the metaphor of a power plant. A power plant doesn't actually have energy. It generates energy. And so what happens is it takes energy from one point of use, that's usually a lower point of use, then it transforms it into a higher point of use, stores it, and then transmits it. And I love that metaphor because look, we all are surrounded by positive energy, negative energy, low energy, high energy, and we, we absorb that stuff. And we have to decide what we want that energy to be like and how we want to transform it and transmit it into the world. And so for me, all well-being and all wellness comes back to a very simple thing, energy. Do you have the energy required to be the best you each day? Do you have the energy throughout the day that is more of the positive emotions or the negative emotions? So at base of almost all things in well-being and wellness is some sense of energy. I really feel that what we have to do is learn how to amplify that. So to me, well-being means literally well and being. So doing and dealing with life well and being who we uniquely really are, but at the most vibrant essence of what that is. It doesn't mean, you know, being a clown or crazy confidence or enthusiasm, but there's an energy that you're proud of and it feels good and allows you to live your best. We got to condition that, not hope it shows up. Yeah. And it's infectious. When you bring that energy into a room, other people light up. Yes, it's true. But this is my question for you more, and this is personal, Yeah, is that you are the source of a lot of that energy. You're putting that out. Yes. Whether with your team on the stage, in personal coaching, there's one direction that energy is going. That's going out. Mm. How does that energy come back in? Mm. How, how, do you, how do you recharge those batteries? Uh, I love that metaphor. I uh, wrote a book called The Charge for exactly that reason, because I think a lot of people don't feel alive. And it partially is because they, they do see it as almost binary. It goes right. out or comes in. And I feel it's a little more circular than that. And what allows you to recharge, though, in that process, I, I have this practice called release tension, set intention. And so for me, between any major activity, there is that pause you talked about. So, I mean, like, here's a daily practical thing. If I'm doing email, and you know, I'm doing my emails, answering emails, and then I'm going to go do a keynote presentation or work on a PowerPoint or a, or a document or something. When I finish that email, before I jump into the next document or the next thing, those are two different activities, right? And between those activities, I create space of recovery. And so what I do is I'll push away from my desk, I'll close my eyes, and I'll repeat this mantra of release to myself. Literally, I'll have my eyes closed and I'll just say, release, 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 release. And that release practice we call RMT, release meditation technique. I'll release the tension in my body. I'll release the tension in my jaw. I'll release the tension in my neck. I'll release the tension in my shoulders. And the word release is also releasing thoughts. So as thoughts come up, I release the thought. It's basic meditation. I'll release that thought and that tension. And then when I feel like it's released enough and sufficiently, then I'll say, okay, what's the intention for the next activity and how do I do well? Oh, well, I'm going to work on this presentation for 45 minutes. How can I do it well? You know, I could maybe could like do this little thing or little, and I'll open my eyes and I'll go to work. And 
that little point of recharge is important because what most people do is they wait to recharge until the two-week vacation. So they burn themselves for 50 weeks and then they take the two weeks. Right. And the reason most people are miserably fitted with a certain kind of energy is because they failed on a daily basis between things to recharge. I call it transition moments. Like those transition recharges are everything. Like for me, you know, after we finish filming a course or do something, I'll, I'll take a beat and I'll recharge. If, uh, you know, I'm, I'm on one phone call, now I got to go in the team meeting. I'll take two minutes, release, go in, or I'll do some breath work, or I'll do a couple flows on the ground, <laughs> you know, right. but I'll do something. And I think that's how I, like people are like, you have so much energy. It never stops. Brendan, oh my God, how have you done so much? I'm like, oh, but you don't see. Yeah. 20 times a day, I do this little recharge. Right. And so I never quite run out. So you had a big inflection point in your life and you've talked very publicly about it. Your, you know, your car accident um, that I think you call your life's golden ticket. Do you feel like people need these inflection points of deep crisis in their life in order to take control and execute around some of these lessons that you provided? Or can people just do that at any moment? I think crisis is one gateway. I think there's a lot of gates that can open into that higher field of consciousness that says, hey, life is precious. Be considerate about your time and your actions and your relationships because at some point it ends. So I think crisis can be a great way. For me, it was kind of that, but you know, the other gates could be a moment of consciousness. The other gates could be a role model. The other gates could be a, a serious conversation about something. Another gate could be somebody that you aspire to be like them and you know you need to change. So everyone has different access points, but I really believe the greatest driver, the biggest aha that any human gets to have is what I call mortality motivation. Mm. And I got mortality motivation, my car accident, at 19, man, right. how lucky at 19, I was gifted with a reverence for life. Because before the car accident, I was suicidal, not thinking about it. I'd been planning it. I had been depressed for over a year because I had had a breakup with the first woman I ever loved. And that's what kind of spent, sent me in a downward spiral. I was a miserable, miserable young man. And then the accident, which was unrelated to my suicidal thoughts, like a random accident, uh, left me standing on the hood of a car bleeding out and seeing all this blood and feeling like I was going to pass out and die and asking these questions of, you know, have I lived and did I love and did I matter that were coming up unconsciously for me? It wasn't like exactly like, you know, did I live, did I love, did I matter? But it just, it was these feelings and this essence and this, this vibe and, I didn't like the answers. I hadn't really lived my life because I was living other people's lives. I'd been thinking about taking mine. I hadn't really loved because I got hurt, so I blocked out my heart. I hadn't really mattered because I was a young man. I hadn't been taught you know, service and contribution and meaning like we all talk about so casually now. I just didn't see all that. But bam, I thought life was getting taken away and I realized how precious it was. And now I had reverence for it and gratitude for it. And that's what I call mortality motivation. It's like when you realize it can go away, you're more motivated to use it well. I always tell people, when they, people talk about like time management, I go, no, no, no. 
Time management is not a productivity thing. Time management is a mortality thing. If you have real reverence for life, you use your time well. Like people tell me all the time, you know, especially in our industry, everyone loves, loves to talk about gratitude. But I think they talk about gratitude too casually. You know how I know if you're a human who has real gratitude? You use your time well. That's, how, that's real reverence for life. I know I don't get much time of this plane of consciousness, at least not while we're, I'm here. So I want to leverage that. I want to use it well. I have reverence for life. So to me, I think people do sometimes need, you know, a thwack on the head. But at the end of the day, it's like, it can also be a beautiful thing where you're just like, I'm so freaking grateful for this life. Yeah. But you know, my greatest teacher was my dad. Oh, yeah? Yeah, even bigger than that. Like my dad, uh, you know, I lost my dad to acute myeloid leukemia in 2009. So I'd had him uh, 33 years of my life, which I'm grateful for. Great dad. Uh, fought uh, three tours in Vietnam. Uh, been married to mom 30 years, I think it was. Had, had worked for the state of Montana for 20 plus years. Really dedicated, simple guy. Just, just anything to bring happiness to him or anger, you know. Uh, and he got diagnosed with leukemia and they gave him seven days to live. He had been playing, you know, golf and bowling the week before. And they gave him seven days to live, but uh, he made it 59 because you can't tell a Marine when he's going to die. <laughs> uh, but I interviewed him. Really? Uh, because I was on stage when I found out that he was uh, diagnosed. And they said seven days. I had four days left at the event. So I was going to cancel and go out there. He told me not to. And one night I was just like having anxiety about it and you know, my heart was broken and I just said, dad, can I call you and you know, interview tonight? So I called him and interviewed him, recorded it. People can find out on the internet, just type in, you know, Brennan Burchard's life interview questions, PDF, it'll pop up somewhere on the internet. And I asked him these 30 questions. And what was amazing about it, it was he, I heard him saying phrases that he had said to me and our family, our whole lives. But I never knew he was so intentional about them. Things like, I mean, think about, so I had a great teacher with my car accident, but think about this. These are my dad's primary seven. You know, uh, He never called him that, but he was saying all the time. Think about the lessons you get in life from this. You know, Brendan, be yourself, be honest, do your best, take care of your family, treat people with respect, be a good citizen. Follow your dreams. What else you got to know? You feel like part of your legacy is to kind of help spread that, that message that your dad gave you? For sure. You know, people see so much of what do I do on the internets and uh, tens of millions of shares of our stuff online and, you know, a quarter million or 250 million video views of personal development stuff. But the most shared thing of anything I've ever done, there's a little quote card I made with my dad's seven lessons to me, and I shared it. It's been viewed now 35 million times online. When people say, what are you most proud about your career? So it's like, you know what? I did this quote card about my dad and what he taught me about life, and it became a thing. And, um, and I, I just think he'd, he'd geek out on that so much, he'd think that's the coolest thing. So What a great <laughs> gift. Yeah. Brendan Burchard, God bless you for all of the beautiful energy that you bring to the world and helping people to live their best lives. Thank you. 
Thank you, brother. I love everything you're doing, and it's an honor to be on your show. Thanks, man. with what matters to you and to discover practices for greater joy, health, and momentum in life, sign up to take Brendan's course, The Wellness Masterclass, at onecommune.com. Thanks for listening to The Commune Podcast. Subscribe now for new episodes every week. I'll see you next time.